we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Whether or not you believe in an afterlife and an eternal soul, as human beings, we have to believe that human life has dignity and purpose. This is Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Historically, people advocated for at least 24 hours between the diagnosis of death and burial in case a mistake was made in the diagnosis. For years, physicians searched for a sure sign of death. Some thought putrefaction of tissues was the only sure sign. Ultimately, it seemed reasonable to define death as when all spontaneous vital functions ceased permanently. Well, then came organ transplantation, and the whole concept of the moment of death has changed irreversibly, like death itself. The advances in medical science have made adherence to medical ethics more essential than ever. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, mechanical ventilation, artificial nutrition, these were only the beginning. Now we're experimenting with pig-to-human transplants and freshly obtained aborted fetal tissue is being used to create humanized mice. We can't get carried away with the technology and forget about the humanity. First and foremost, a patient has the right to self-determination, and it's the physician's duty to respect the patient's decisions and to do no harm to the patient. We even now have incidents where patients are being labeled DNR, that's do not resuscitate, without their family's consent. Unfortunately, along with the innovations that can prolong life and sometimes even cure, we have drifted into a utilitarian mindset when considering patient treatment alternatives. Oftentimes, the treatment pathway is at odds with the concept of the innate dignity of being a living human being. After all, we're far more than just clumps of cells or a collection of body parts for future use. Also disturbing is the popularity of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, or euphemistically, medical aid in dying, or MAID, in Canada, Assisted suicide has been in effect since 2016, but in 2022, medically assisted deaths constituted 4% of all deaths in Canada, and that was a 30% increase from 2021. And the patient who partakes of this service doesn't have to be terminally ill. According to a BBC News report, Social problems like poverty, lack of housing, or extreme loneliness may contribute to the patient's willingness to request this assisted death. And people wonder, can this be used as a solution for societal challenges? 
Now persons suffering solely, I mean solely, a mental illness will be eligible for MAID as of March 17th, 2024. As there is more and more discussion of scarce medical resources, we have to be vigilant that as physicians, we maintain our commitment to respect human life. Today, my guests will discuss the past, present, and future of the concept of brain death. Dr. Heidi Klessig attended medical school at University of Wisconsin, where she also completed her residency in anesthesiology. And she's also certified in pain management. She was a founding partner of the Pain Clinic of Northwestern Wisconsin and was an instructor for the International Spine Injection Society. She recently authored a brand new book called The Brain Death Fallacy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Klesig. Well, thank you, Dr. Singleton. It is a pleasure to be back with you again, and, and I appreciate that introduction. Uh, respect for human life is, is a topic near and dear to my heart. Well, and that's why you're here. I think with everything we see, all the looting and pillaging and raping and everything that seems to be going on in so-called civilized societies, I begin to wonder what's happening to our respect for life. But boy, that's a whole topic in itself. I mean, the Maryland in me says death is a separation of body and spirit. But Dr. Singleton has to look at it differently. And that's why you're here to do a deep discussion. And before we even start, there's one thing I have to say. Words mean everything. And so we're seeing this so much now with all the new speak and politically correct talk. And everybody knows the term brain death, but now they want to call it death by neurologic criteria. It's like this is weaving us toward a way to be more accepting of this. So that's my two cents. So I'm just going to get started, and we'll talk about some of the things we talk about in your book. And one of the initial things you say is 97% of doctors are comfortable that believing in believing brain death is death. Why? Well, I was sort of fascinated by that. I started researching um, for this book because I was asked to give a report to doctors. Uh, I was honored to be asked by the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons to give a talk on the brain death topic at their recent annual meeting. And interestingly, uh, the majority of doctors stated in a, a survey uh, study done by uh, another neurologist, uh, Dr. Ari Jaffe, that they were comfortable diagnosing brain death because it had been taught to them as a medical or a legal standard, you know, full stop. They had been taught that this was the way we do it. And so that's why they were comfortable. There was not a discussion of why should a definition of brain death be the same as, as biological death or traditional death? You know, most doctors, and, and I include myself in this because I'm just as guilty as anyone else, we got 
to go to medical school um, because we are smart, yes, but also because uh, we were very good at knowing how to put the right answer on the test, weren't we? And we knew also how to please the teacher. And so I tell people, many doctors, and, and your own doctor included, really may not have thought very much about the brain death diagnosis. It was taught to them. They knew it was the right answer on the test, and it pleased the teacher to have them put that answer down. And so there's not a problem with asking your doctor a question about this. I find there's actually quite a power in asking a question. I was speaking to a group of medical students at Texas A&M University, and, and they said, how do we bring this up? And I said, just ask your instructors, why is brain death death? And see what they say, because again, many doctors just haven't thought about it other than the fact it's the right answer that I was told to put down on the test. Well, forget about we consider brain death a legal definition. How do we tell whether people are dead medically? Well, the problem that we have uh, is the question, when is somebody dead? And in biological terms, if you look at your biology book, it will tell you that death is the loss of the integrative functioning of the organism as a whole. Now, that's a lot of $10 words. And, and what it boils down to is that in life, all of the systems of our body work together in harmony. I mean, a six-year-old child can look at a living squirrel hopping around the backyard and a dead squirrel on the highway and immediately know the difference. Um, the, the squirrel in the backyard, the heart is beating. There's oxygen going to the tissues. It's the, uh, the organism is able to, to move, to excrete, to bear young. I mean, all these things are associated with life. Life is associated with processes of growth, whereas death is associated with processes of decay. And most faith traditions define death as being equivalent with this biological definition of death. I mean, traditionally, uh, most faith traditions would say it's the departure of the spirit that causes that loss of bodily integration. But because we don't have a, you know, a spiritometer or a soulometer, we can't see that departure. Uh, as physicians, traditionally, we have always relied on biological signs that life has stopped. Uh, things like loss of heartbeat, loss of breathing, loss of um, the ability to respond and when those things are maintained over time and the body becomes, as you mentioned in the introduction, cold, gray, and, and begins to putrefy, we see that those processes tending toward decay and destruction have taken over. There is no longer life present. Okay. Well, if that's how we look at death, and it's almost like a layman, even though in the movies and stuff, you know, people will go up to somebody and say, oh, they're dead. It's like you talking about the child and the squirrel. They can immediately tell the difference. But with patients in the hospital who are hovering between life and death, and they're on artificial ventilation and all these various drugs we have to keep people alive, why is it that medicine has to have a new definition of death? Uh, well, interestingly, the new definition of death was driven by a, a couple of technological developments. So traditionally, you know, the heart and the lung stoppage was was 
def, the def, the uniform definition of death medically and legally. But with the uh, development of the ICU and the development of the uh, ventilator, then people who previously would have perished were being kept alive. And doctors had not yet developed a lot of the techniques that we now use commonly to help these people recover. So there was a concern that now that people are being put in ICUs on ventilators, we would just have myriads of patients stacking up in our ICUs who would never be cured. Uh, ultimately, this did not prove to be the case as medical science continued to catch up with itself and, and newer and, and more modern developments now save many people who in the 1950s when ICUs first originated would have certainly uh, been felt to be irrecoverable. Uh, the second driver in the process of redefining a, a neurologic set of criteria for death was the development of organ transplantation. And uh, in 1967, Dr. Christian Bernard performed the first heart transplant. And three days later in Brooklyn, a, a heart was transplanted from one infant to another infant. Uh, both of those cases, the, the recipients expired fairly quickly. But in January of 1968, uh, a black man in South Africa uh, had a brain bleed and was taken to the hospital in South Africa. And that very same day that he was admitted, the transplant team under Dr. Christian Barnard asked his attending physician to declare him dead. Now his uh, physician's name was Dr. Hoffenberg, who sort of balked at that. Um, and the transplant team said to him, uh, God, Bill, what sort of heart are you going to give us? Meaning if you wait till that heart stops beating, it will very rapidly begin to decompose and not be suitable for transplant. So under a lot of pressure, Dr. Hoffenberg did pronounce Mr. Clive Haupt dead the next morning, and his beating heart was put into a retired white dentist. Now, this caused doctors to face a dilemma. They knew that Haupt's death declaration was ethically and legally on very shaky ground, but the fact that this transplant of a, of a beating heart was much more successful, showed that fresh viable organs were going to be an absolute necessity for, for good transplants. So in August of that same year, 1968, a group of uh, people at the uh, Harvard Medical School published a landmark article redefining someone in a coma that doctors felt was irreversible to now be redefined as dead. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, this is often a battle over the dictionary, right? It's redefining words. Now, up until 1968, no one would have thought that someone in a coma could possibly be dead. I mean, they're in a coma, they're uh, having some medical challenges, but death, of course not. But this redefinition was made with a specific goal in mind, and it was to justify taking fresh, viable organs, such as a, a beating heart, uh, from people by simply declaring them to be dead by fiat. Now, I want to emphasize there were no tests or studies or medical evidence that these people are dead. And interestingly, you know, here we are, you know, 50, 60 years later, there are still no tests, evidence, or medical data that shows these people are actually dead. In fact, uh, just a couple of months ago in October, the American Academy of Neurology came out with a new guideline. And right on the front page of the guideline, they come right out and admit that there is no 
high quality evidence on the subject. So they weren't able to show any medical data to prove that people are dead by neurological criteria. So they did it by majority vote. And, and that's well, a problem. Well, we'll get into more of the history of how that came out. And when you say, huh, they did it by majority vote by fiat, that's sounding so familiar with uh, how many things are being done overall in our government and overall in medicine about many other guidelines and whatnot that don't necessarily have a scientific basis. So we'll get more into the details of what these criteria are and define for folks what the dead donor rule is and and um, some more about the initial act that started defining so-called brain death after the break. Right now, I'd just like to talk again about Cofix Rx. We're in the middle of winter and the cold and flu season, and we need something to help us not get sick. Cofix Rx is a simple idea. It's a nasal spray, mainly povidone iodine, which is shown to be a powerful antiviral agent. It's also got some vitamin D and some xylitol. And you can think of using this nasal spray like how you use an airbag in a car. It's not going to keep you from getting injured 100%, but it decreases the impact of the virus. Most of these viruses that uh, get us sick with the respiratory illnesses, come in through our nose. We can catch it right in our nose before the viruses have a chance to replicate over the first couple of days. Then our chances of not getting sick are really increased a lot. I like it. I use it. I use it when I go out like to big box store, grocery store, where I'm around people I don't know. And, um, knock on plastic, um, it's helped me from getting colds. So we've got a Cofix RX button right on our page and uh, click it on, read more about it. And I love it. It's made in the USA, invented in the USA. So that's a extra bonus. So check it out. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. 
Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Heidi Klesig about the definition of death. And she was told us about the first heart transplant and the ethical considerations around that. So a big muck muckas at Harvard. Hmm, Harvard, do we trust them now these days? Um, in 1968, got together and pulled together some criteria for deciding death. So, Dr. Klesik, what are some of those criteria? Uh, well, in 1981, there was a presidential commission that came out with a recommendation that now has been uh, codified into law in, in almost every state called the Uniform Determination of Death Act, or the UDDA, the UDDA defines death in one of two ways. They say that an individual who has sustained either number one, the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, that's heart and lungs, or number two, the new definition, the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, is dead, and a determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. <laughs> well, what are these acceptable medical standards? Well, and that's proven fairly elastic over time. Interestingly, even back in 1981, when this was put into law, the medical uh, community was not then, nor has the medical community subsequently actually adhered to the UDDA legal definition of death by neurological criteria, also known as brain death. Because if you wanted to test for this, you would have to test that all functions of the entire brain had irreversibly ceased. Um, in practicality, what doctors actually test is for responsiveness. I mean, can the patient respond? Because we have no tests for consciousness, not even today. Um, so you could be inwardly conscious, but unable to make a sign, make a movement, and doctors would be able to infer perhaps that you were having irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. I've actually talked to a woman. Her name is Jennifer Haman. If you go to our website, we have a survivor's page, and you can read and read her story, see her video. She was a young woman with a seizure disorder and was incorrectly prescribed a medicine that uh, did not work well with her anti-seizure medicines and was thrown into intractable seizures. She remembers lying in a hospital on a ventilator and hearing the, the care team come into the room. And the doctor essentially said, well, this is a sad case, a young woman with two small children. But other than her dead brain, she's in wonderful shape. But her husband is being so unreasonable. If only he would agree to make her an organ donor, so many people could be helped by her healthy organs. Well, Jennifer overheard these words. And she said it was really due to the help of a caring nurse who worked with her and said, come on, Jenny, I know you're in there. Breathe, try to breathe. And she said it was almost as if I had to relearn how to find those parts of my body to make those breathing motions again. But ultimately, she was successful. She was able to get off the ventilator. Not only was she able to return to her work as a wife and mother, but she went on to become a registered nurse. She was so inspired by the help given to her by that caring nurse. So again, 
responsiveness is not the same as unconsciousness. And so this is this is something that doctors are unable to say that you are irreversibly unconscious. We can only say that you're unable to respond. We'll say that you're unable to respond. Then the doctors will check certain of the brain stem reflexes. Not all functions of the entire brain are tested. And in fact, it's been found that about 20% of people declared brain dead have electrical activity on an EEG or electroencephalogram. And half, 50% fully, still have functions of part of the brain um, called the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And, and these people are felt to be possibly recoverable. Uh, Dr. Cicero Coimbra did some work and he found that the hypothalamus continues to function at a somewhat lower level of blood flow, whereas the rest of the brain kind of turns off, sort of like the wiring in your house is still there, but it kind of turns off when there's a power outage, but the wiring isn't destroyed. If you return blood flow to the brain or electrical flow to your house, the lights will come back on. And a functioning hypothalamus is sort of a marker for this. So testing the, the brainstem functions does not meet the criteria for death legally under the UDDA. And the last part of the test is called an apnea test. And the apnea test uh, disconnects the patient from their ventilator for up to 10 minutes. Now, the apnea test has never been verified to be a test that um, will absolutely predict that this person is incapable of breathing. In fact, Dr. Alan Schumann reported a case of a, a little two-year-old boy who had failed his apnea test. His parents were told he was brain dead. The parents decided they weren't going to make him an organ donor. They wanted him to die in their arms. So this boy, having been declared brain dead, uh, was placed in their arms, uh, removed from the ventilator, and he began to gasp for breath. Well, this is horrifying, not only to the parents and, and the family, but to the whole hospital staff. If, and if you consider that had they decided to have his organs transplanted, no one would have known that this little boy was certainly not dead, and he would have died under the knife in a cold operating room, which, which is a horrifying thing to contemplate. So the apnea test is not a verified test. It's an unethical test because you're performing this on somebody who you don't know that they're brain dead. And in fact, removing someone from the ventilator can cause low blood pressure, which again, if you're having a brain injury, you, you need blood flow to keep your brain from getting worse. So it can make the brain worse that way. Also, removing the ventilator causes the CO2 to build up in our bloodstream. And that causes vasodilatation in the brain and increases the pressure inside the skull, which also exacerbates brain damage. So there have been cases where a patient was not found to fail the apnea test uh, the first time, but when it was repeated, well, now the patient does meet the criteria for brain dead because the apnea test itself can cause more brain damage. So under the UDDA, uh, we are supposed to be checking all functions of the entire brain. And to summarize, uh, the doctors are not doing that currently. They are only testing parts of the brain and determining brain death on those bases. Well, it it almost sounds like declaring someone brain dead becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy once you decide they're brain dead. 
and you stop giving them the extra oxygen and the extra ventilation, then they may well become brain dead. And something about that doesn't seem quite right. Now, there is something, I believe it's called the dead donor rule. What rule is that? Does that help with this definition? The dead donor rule is is an important rule, but it is just that it is a it's a rule. It's it's not a law. It's an ethical consideration. And so, what the dead donor rule says is that people must neither be alive when organs are removed, nor killed by the process of organ removal. And so, to skirt the dead donor rule is where these redefinitions become useful to people. So, by redefining people who are in a coma to be dead, well, now you've skirted the dead donor rule. Be it because you've called them dead by a new definition, now you have been able to get away with something that the dead donor rule would not have allowed had you not dumbed down or redefined the definition of death. Well, that certainly makes sense. And you go back to what you said, why we need this. Of course, we need good organs for transplant. And it it just strikes me a little odd, given that we do have stories of people who've lived long after they've been declared dead. Now, coming from Oakland, there was a story that was very familiar to me. It was a young lady named Jahi McMath. Are you familiar with that young lady? Yes, I did a lot of research on, on Jahai McMath for my for my presentation and for my book. There's a whole chapter on, on Jahai McMath. Um, she was a 13-year-old little gal who uh, suffered a cardiac arrest uh, due to post-operative bleeding after a tonsillectomy and palate reconstruction for sleep apnea. And the, the sad thing about Jahai McMath, if you read her mother's report, her mother was frantic and was trying to get doctors to look at her daughter and, and come and assess this bleeding. And she really felt that she was sort of written off because of uh, being a black family. And she said, I really can't prove it, but I believe, you know, had Jahai been a little white girl, she might have gotten a little more attention. But after having a cardiac arrest, uh, Jahai was declared uh, brain dead according to the, the standards of the time. She would have met brain death criteria for both the adult and pediatric standards of her day. And also, she would have been declared brain dead under the new 2023 guidelines as well. She had four uh, flatline EEGs. She had radioisotope scans showing no intracranial blood flow. She had three of the apnea tests that I mentioned that could only have made her, her brain worse. The thing that really horrified me when I studied her case is when the doctor went to perform her first apnea test, her baseline CO2, and, and Dr. Singleton, you'll be aware of how abnormal this is, her baseline CO2 before starting the apnea test was 51. Now, for someone with a brain injury, that's 11 points above normal. And, and usually when someone has a brain injury, we try to hyperventilate them a little to cause less swelling in the brain. So she did not receive at all optimal care. It, it really appeared the hospital was in a hurry to get her determined to be brain death. 
uh, dead, determined to be brain death. Um, her parents disputed, however, that she was dead. I mean, this was their little girl. She was warm. She was moving on occasion. Uh, they said, well, how could she be dead? Uh, so they were given help uh, through uh, Dr. Paul Burns Life Guardian Foundation and were able to move her to New Jersey. Now, New Jersey is the only state in the union that has a religious exemption to determination of death by the brain death or neurologic criteria. In the state of New Jersey, if you have a religious objection, which Jahai McMass parents did, they did not feel that you were dead until your spirit departed and you became you know, cold and stiff under the traditional definition. Uh, so in New Jersey, you, you cannot be declared brain dead if your family has a religious uh, exemption to it. So she was taken to New Jersey where People said, well, she's going to decompose. She's going to recent, you know, very soon become a corpse. But she actually did very well once they started treating her. You know, sadly, in Oakland, uh, once the hospital declared her brain dead, they stopped feeding her. And so she had been starved for three months. Who knows how much recovery she might have made if she had been actually given nutrition for those three months. Um, but after being moved to New Jersey and given treatment, she went through puberty and began to menstruate. Now, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be a doctor to know that corpses do not get their period. I mean, this girl was clearly not dead. And she began to respond to commands. She had uh, heart rate variability when her mother would speak, her, her heart rate would slow down. And so she was reevaluated, and an MRI nine and a half months later showed that her upper structures of her brain were very much preserved, though she had a lot of destruction in the brain stem. And again, as I mentioned earlier, unlike what the legal requirement is under the UDDA that the doctor should be testing if all functions of the entire brain are destroyed, unfortunately, doctors only check the brain stem. So in Jahai's case, her brain stem was very much damaged, but her upper brain was largely intact. And she was evaluated subsequently by two neurologists, both of whom testified that she was no longer meeting the criteria for brain death, but rather she was in a minimally conscious state. That means that she was at intervals able to respond appropriately to commands, understanding that her mother was in the room. In fact, Dr. Schumann was able to see Jahai McMath on a video when her mother asked Jahai, which is the FU finger? Jahai put the correct finger up in the air. So, I mean, this is a girl who's obviously able to think and respond. This is one of the stories and, you know, people can say, well, take it or leave it. That's rare. That doesn't happen all the time. But frankly, we don't know how often it happens because most families are in shock, they're grieving, they believe everything they're told, and they don't necessarily fight back. And this is one of the reasons we're discussing this kind of depressing topic, but that's one of the reasons we have this show. We want to keep everybody informed about all aspects of medicine, and this is one we don't like to think about, but we have to. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk about the uh, the meeting that was held and the proposed changes to this uh, Uniform Determination of Death Act, and these changes never came about, but the various societies that are at the forefront of making these standards have come up with new guidelines. And on this show, 
we've talked about guidelines before and um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and what this does to the legal standard of declaring someone brain dead. So we'll get into all that after the break. I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We have our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. One thing I love about the show is that all of the shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. And of course, as you know, one of my favorite things is that there's a different doctor on it every day. So a lot of different ideas and people to choose from. I'm on on Mondays, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough for you, we've got Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So a lot out there for you. Lots of medicine, lots of politics, lots of information. And thanks again for listening. George Washington once encouraged us to animate and encourage each other and show the whole world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth. That's exactly what we do, as you'll see when you visit AmericaOutloud.news. Now is our time. My fellow Americans, America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's foreign protein cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Before the break, I tempted you with the ideas of new legal standards 
from the original Uniform Determination of Death Act, and Dr. Klesig and I will discuss this. So there was a big meeting in, uh, what, the summer of 2023, and there were supposed to be some new proposals, but they never came about. Number one, Dr. Klesig, why do you think that there, there wasn't a new model act that came out of this big meeting? Well, this uh, disconnect that, that we've been talking about between the, the medical, the way the medical community diagnoses brain death and the legal standard of brain death was the reason that the American Academy of Neurology, among others, petitioned a body called the Uniform Law Commission to see if they would change the law to reflect uh, what doctors were doing. Um, they thought, well, we have to make a change one way or another. And, and to make the medical criteria as, as rigorous as the UDDA demands would be expensive and time-consuming. And, and it would probably adversely impact rates of organ procurement. So they decided it would be far more feasible to bring the law into line with current medical practice than to bring medical practice into line with the law. And so the Uniform Law Commis Commission received that petition and they set up a study committee and, and a drafting committee. And over the course of several years, uh, lawyers, uh, neurologists debate all these facets of brain death testing, um, but they could not come to a consensus. And so this summer, when the Uniform Law Commission had their annual meeting in Hawaii, they were not able to propose a consensus statement. They 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 proposed a statement, but they had to say our our drafting committee was not able to come to a, a unanimous endorsement of this. And so the lawyers at the at the annual meeting were were kind of perplexed as I watched the the meeting on live stream. They're saying, you know, how come you know, if if doctors aren't following the law, perhaps doctors should be the ones to change. Why are we changing the law instead of having doctors follow it? And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, how the end of life is very similar to the beginning of life. You know, at the beginning of life, when when we're conceived, actually, we don't even have a brain for the first six weeks of our life in utero. Um, so why should life or death be determined on on function of the brain when when we you know, believe that a, a unborn baby has life even before the, before the brain develops? So this is part of the discussion. And finally, in September of this year, because it was obviously not something that the Uniform Law Commission could get consensus on, in addition, there was a fear that by simply raising the question in the public eye that there shining the light on this discussion would probably allow more people to look at the discussion more critically and might actually adversely affect the public's uh, perception of brain death overall. The Uniform Law Commission decided to simply table the discussion. And at this point, there is really no proposal to, to open it back up. So right now, the law continues to be the 1981 Uniform Determination of Death Act stipulating that there must be irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Well, so what's the story with these guidelines that are coming out of the Neurology Association and Critical Care Medicine and Pediatrics, which kind of gives me the willies, 
that uh, children will be treated in the same bucket as adults, because we all know children are much more resilient. But um, that kind of surprises me more than anything else, that they kind of put kids and adults in the same basket. But um, so what do we do about these new guidelines? And what are some of the differences with what the, the law of the UDDA says and what these guidelines are recommending for deciding when a person is brain dead? So in, as I mentioned, in uh, the end of September of this year, the Uniform Law Commission declined to change the definition of death uh, under the law. In October, on October 11th of this year, in the journal Neurology, the American Academy of Neurology, along with several other critical care societies, came out with what they call the Pediatric and Adult Brain Death slash Death by Neurologic Criteria Consensus Guideline. And the reason that they call it a consensus guideline, again, is that there is no evidence medically, scientifically, that brain death is death. And in fact, in, right on the, the opening statements of the paper, they say because of the lack of high quality evidence on the subject, a novel evidence-informed formal consensus pro process was used. And they go on to say that they used a panel of, of experts. Uh, the experts were screened uh, to exclude people who might have a different opinion on this, first of all. And the experts then came to this consensus by majority vote. I mean, whatever happened to the scientific method? Uh, so the experts who were convened, they anonymously submitted recommendations, and then the recommendations were submitted to three rounds of anonymous voting. So the methods used in establishing these guidelines, uh, were, were the people were not only screened to exclude dissenting voices, but in addition, they used a method that exacerbates the echo chamber effect. So the Guidelines are not scientific. These are simply opinion-based to begin with. Um, but then they go on to say that brain death or death by neurological criteria, according to this consensus of self-appointed experts, uh, is something that occurs in individuals who have sustained a, a brain injury. And they say that they have no evidence of the function of the brain as a whole. And they say that the state must be permanent. So brain as a whole is is just the newest justification uh, for why brain death might be death. And interestingly, uh, Dr. James Burnett, who's been working on this definition now for some years, uh, I'll just quote him. He says, while the brain as a whole criterion remains at an early stage of refinement, it probably entails cessation of all major brain functions, but not the relatively minor functions such as the hypothalamus that I mentioned earlier and, and EEG activity. So again, brain as a whole, Dr. Burnett says it's a criterion that is still being kind of hashed out. But the paper that came out in neurology, even though this justification is still sort of a work in progress, was, was able to base uh, their new guideline upon it. The other big change in the guideline is that they've changed from the word irreversible, which is the statutory definition under the UDDA, to the word permanent. Now, in common speech, we might sort of interchange those words, irreversible and permanent. They seem pretty synonymous most of the time. But medically and legally, they have very 
different definitions in this case. So the state being irreversible is defined to mean that this state is incapable of being reversed. It cannot be reversed. Whereas permanent now is being defined to say that the situation will not be reversed. Okay, so there's a there's an element of intent going on with the word permanent. Um, what permanent means is that medical interventions will not be used to try to restore the function. And this definition, will not be used, implies that, well, intervention might have been used. And if it had been used, you know, it might have been successful. So this reveals that this determination of permanent means people have been declared, would be declared dead, who could possibly be resuscitated. Now, if you can be resuscitated, you are never dead. And, and this is an important distinction. I mean, you'll hear your patients or your friends tell you, you know, my Uncle Charlie, he died five times, but doctors kept shocking him back to life, right? Well, if you can be resuscitated, it's, it's not the same as being resurrected. Uh, if you have died, uh, no mortal can bring you back from the dead, right? You can, a resurrection really only occurs through divine intervention from, from a state of being dead to a state of being alive. If you can be medically resuscitated, this means you were never dead to begin with. And this is why there's such a problem with the term being changed from irreversible, which means cannot be reversed, to permanent, which means will not be reversed. It means doctors might be able to reverse it, but they're just not going to. And that's a pretty scary change in definition. And like I said in the beginning, words mean everything. And we're having these shifts in words, shifts in meaning and euphemisms and, you know, like uh, euthanasia is now medical assistance and dying. I you know, it's happening so much, it makes me cringe that we're doctors and we're not supposed to be hurting people. And I mean, you did pain management and most people, are when they think they can't live any longer, it's because they're in pain and and have some medical things that they're having extreme difficulties with. And I think if we put more energies into helping with pain and helping with some of these difficulties, that perhaps people wouldn't want to kill themselves. And uh, perhaps it would bring a little bit more humanity back to medical personnel who... Uh, are looking at people as more of a whole person and not just body parts. And that's the part that scares me because it's so easy for us to move in that direction. I, you know, disabled people, you know, do we really need them? You know, but their organs are in good shape. What was that case? I, you're from Wisconsin and I think this, it, this was in Wisconsin or Minnesota to me. Ah, they're kind of the same up there, high northern United States, where a girl with Down syndrome was placed on DNR, and her family didn't even know it. Yes, you're talking about Grace Shara, and and thankfully yes. she they there will be a jury trial in her case. It won't be until next year, but they are going to be given their day in court, which for which I'm grateful. 
But but what you're saying is quite true. You know, by declaring people brain dead because we want those healthy organs or for whatever reason, we are missing out on the scientific advances that we could be finding out how to help these people. I mean, I mentioned earlier uh, the definition of global ischemic penumbra by Dr. Cicero Coimbra from Brazil, showing that people might have just enough blood flow to keep the tissues viable, but not enough to allow them to respond to a neurologic exam. And if we would recognize this and work harder on those people, a lot of them could be saved. Dr. Coimbra himself actually reported by simply supplementing thyroid hormone to a woman under his care who had been diagnosed brain dead, she actually woke up and was able to talk to her parents. So we're missing out on the scientific discoveries we need to know how to help these people better. I mean, last year in the journal Nature, a group of doctors from Yale University talked about using um, an organ X sort of new uh, perfusate that was able to cause less tissue breakdown in, in animals who had been dead and warm for, for an hour or more. And this is an exciting development. Even the brains in those animals showed less breakdown and the possibility that, you know, if we would study a little more, we might be able to find more ways to recover, you know, people even who have had loss of brain circulation for a period of time. So, yes, we need to not just write these people off. We need to find more ways to help them. And this is something, this is why we're here. This is why physicians, nurses, other healthcare professionals, presumably we went into medicine to help patients, to heal patients. And I'm not saying that everyone can be healed and everyone will wake up, but we have to look at the other side of the picture. These days, people are thrown into hospice quite quickly um, maybe more quickly than need be. And uh, there may be many motivations for that, whole nother topic. But um, it, it well, frankly, it, it leaves me speechless thinking of where we're going, that we're not thinking of ways to help the folks. And if they, if it becomes clear, things are irreversible, then you move on to the next step. But it's not our job to prod these folks along into uh, a quicker death. Dr. Klesig, can you believe it? Our hour is over. Oh, I mean, it goes so fast. Tell quickly, what can people do to uh, avoid being having their family member declared dead too soon? Sure. Um, you know, I honestly, I think this topic, I mean, we don't like to talk about death. I, I admit that. But actually, I think this discussion is is not so much depressing as empowering. You know, finding out the truth about these things allows us to take steps to make things right. And and I think that's when when people get mad, I think that's what that's what anger is for. It's to give us the energy to try to make things right. So here's some things that you can do to make things right. You know, first become aware of of the updated information on on brain death, on organ harvesting and transplant and and what kinds are ethical and what kinds are unethical. Um, I would recommend that nobody be a registered organ donor. I mean, 
if once you're a registered organ donor, it does remove the ability for your family to step in in case things are, are maybe going a little too fast. I, I would not sign a donor card. And if you have signed one, I would go to the DMV and remove uh, that permission. But sadly, that's not enough. According to the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, when it was revived and revised in 2006, now you must explicitly state a refusal because that gift act says that if your family's not available and if you go to the hospital incapacitated and there's no documented evidence that you have refused to donate, even the hospital of the even the administrator of the hospital can make an anatomical gift of your body or organ or body part. So you need to make a refusal, and this, I think, should be stated in your electronic medical record. And there's a, a couple of places that do have uh, opt-out cards that you can carry in your wallet. If you go to our website, respectforhumanlife.com, uh, we have a link to an opt-out card for that kind of thing. Um, our our uh, My new book, The Brain Death Fallacy, just came out uh, for uh, the end of October, and it's a it's a very nice summary. It's semi-technical, so if, if you're a doctor, it's it will hit you uh, where you need to be. You need to read the facts, and if you're not a doctor, I mean, I have a 95-year-old lady at church that was able to read it. It's not terribly difficult, I don't think, but it goes over the history of brain death determination, and, and it gives you these action points at the end as well, and, and you can find that on our website, respectforhumanlife.com or on Amazon. It's called The Brain Death Fallacy by Dr. Heidi Klesig. Well, Dr. Klesig, this has been a wealth of knowledge. And like we always say here, knowledge is power. Thanks for coming on the show. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks so much, Dr. Singleton. And I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Here on The Pulse, we always like to say we are a beat ahead. We've got so many things going on on the website now. We've got our trending cloud. Um, we've got email that you can email us questions that you have for the host or the guests. And we've got americaoutloud.shop. And that's where you can get the books by our guests, as well as other books of interest, products from the wellness company. And if you put in the code OUTLOUD, you can get a discount on these products. So like I love to say, whether you agree or have other opinions, Please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud. <laughs>